It is obligatory to say that it's an honor to be here, but it really is. Um, you know, I, I have more things to say about Paul than we have time uh, in our hour together. Um, a, a shepherd, scholar, pastor, expositor, theologian, um, extraordinaire. Um, you have uh, an incredible shepherd among you. Um, you have a master theologian. You have one of the greatest expositors uh, I have ever heard here with you. And he loves you, cares for you. We had dinner last night, and he, he loves his flock. He has been here only a short while, I understand, but um, as a good shepherd, the good shepherd that he is, he already, already is drawn to you with affection, his flock. So it's good to be with you. I send you greetings from Christ Community Bible Church in Arlington, Texas. I've only been there for three years, and I love it. Um, it, it's thrilling to me to be a part of this massive 8 million person metroplex in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, many of whom profess Christianity. Uh, about 86% of the population uh, professes to be Christian, and that is not true. There, there, there is nothing true about those numbers at all. Uh, millions and millions and millions of perishing souls in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, millions of Muslims, uh, not millions, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of Muslims, the fourth largest Muslim population in the United States is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, thousands of Vietnamese and people from India, and so the nations are at our fingertips uh, in our backyard there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so uh, should you uh, think of me uh, in my church, please, please pray, but... I'm sure that you have heard the buzz and the commotion about the metaverse and everything Facebook is doing. You heard about this. Facebook has unveiled this new plan, this new development that's supposed to change the way we do social networking. You see, Facebook, as we know it, the way we've used it, that's now a thing of the past. Posting pictures of your kids or your latte or your vacation, or wishing people happy birthday, that's obsolete now. That is old school Facebook. You see, Facebook has now changed their name to Meta. Meta, which means transcendence. It means to transcend. And they have developed, get this, and you know this, they have developed a fully online, immersive, interactive, three-dimensional alternative reality called the Metaverse. Those of you who don't know, what is the metaverse? The metaverse is a 3D digital universe that is an alternative to the real one. It's a virtual reality version of Facebook. You put on some goggles and some headphones and some uh, ear earbuds and, and you go online and you are digitally transported to an alternative reality. Really what it is is a customized, self-made utopia where you get to play God is what it is. You control your little universe, you interact with other self-made gods who have their little universes, and it's all online, it's all digital, and it's all fake. You can go where you want, kind of. You can be who you want, not really. You can create whatever kind of reality your heart desires and craves. It is a digital paradise where you are in control, you are sovereign, and you get to escape from the pain and the problems of the world. People are really concerned about this, rightly so, because it means that many people will never have to interact with another human being or ever leave the house again. 
People are concerned about this, rightly so, because it means that a worldview of a godless corporation will be injected directly into people's minds. People are concerned about this, rightly so, because it means that millions, maybe even billions of people will be living in a dream world fantasy designed to help people escape from what is actually real. Although this is not surprising to us that this would happen, it is nevertheless tragic and it is sad. The question is, what does meta have to do with the prophet Isaiah? The point is, prophecy is not like that. Prophecy is not virtual reality. What I mean is prophecy and eschatology in the Bible is not an escape from reality, it is reality. It reveals that God is sovereign in the present and sovereign in the future. And that what God has planned for his people in the age to come is nothing less than a return to paradise in a global kingdom under the reign of the Messiah who will make all things be the way they ought to be. And people like me, for instance, are really concerned, rightly so. Because the failure of many churches and millions of people in those churches to thrive in the Christian life is precisely because they do not know, they do not love, and they do not value the prophets and what God has revealed as to what the end of the world is going to be. And in this breathtaking masterpiece of prophetic gold, called the book of Isaiah, that is what God reveals again and again and again, namely the sovereign, glorious kingdom of the Messiah. And when we're done with our text this morning, you will be more prepared to face the onslaught of the world. The title of my sermon is called Kingdom Nostalgia. Kingdom Nostalgia, and what I mean by that is, is that what you're about to see and hear is going to sound very familiar to you, not merely because you've read the text before, not merely because you've heard this text read before, but because precisely what we see in the text is a picture of the paradise that you were originally intended to enjoy. What I mean is, what you're about to see is an alternative reality of the way things should have been before sin entered the world, and yet it is a glimpse of how things will be again when Yahweh builds his kingdom in the world. Because when that happens, mark my words, war will be no more. The nations will be saved. Justice will reign. Israel will be rescued. And believe it or not, God himself will reign on the earth from a throne in Jerusalem. That is in the text. That is the future. That is the happily ever after of our lives. Which means what you're about to see this morning is a picture of home. Your future home if you belong to Jesus Christ You understand we are right now living in the ancient ruins of a civilization that in the beginning was created perfect. We live in this advanced technological age which seems so alive and thriving and sophisticated on the surface. And yet with all of its innovation and beauty, this world is but a shadow of what it once was. And what it will be again. So you need to understand this morning, what you're about to see is not an escape from reality. 
It is reality. Ultimate reality. The way things were supposed to be. The way they will be again when the great high king comes to claim his throne. Which means what you're about to see is prophecy. Biblical prophecy and the glory of what God has ordained to come at the end of the age. And so look with me at Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And let's get a glimpse of our future kingdom home. If you like outlines and you like keeping track of how things go, I have one for you. This morning I want you to see from our text four melodic glories. Four melodic glories in the future to sustain our souls in the sour of the present. Four melodic glories in the future designed to sustain our souls in the sour of the present. And by melodic glories, I simply mean that the things you're about to see will be music to our ears. So melodic glory, number one. Number one, the unrivaled preeminence of Zion. The unrivaled preeminence of Zion. Because the question is, How do you get a wicked, godless people to repent? How do you do that? The question is, how do you provoke an arrogant, idolatrous, delusional people to see their sin and yield to God in broken-hearted repentance and faith? How do you do that exactly? Well, that's an interesting question. Because when you look at the prophets, the answer is clear. The prophets provide two equal but alternative methods that you use to bring a wicked, sinful people to repentance. Both are good, both are right, both are effective, both are necessary. For instance, to awaken sinners to repent, on the one hand, you, without apology, reveal the wrath in the future that awaits them if they don't repent. And on the other hand, equally valid, equally necessary, equally effective, you unfold for them the glorious kingdom paradise that awaits them if they do repent. Here's what will happen to you if you don't repent. Here is what you get to enjoy if you do repent. Both are good, both are effective, both are necessary, and both are exactly what Isaiah does in chapters 1 through 5. Which are all introduction, by the way. Chapters 1 through 5 intro the entire book. And let me just tell you that chapters 1 through 5, they are a bumpy ride. What I mean, Isaiah spends the first five chapters going back and forth between bad news and good news. And when the news is bad, it is really, really bad. When the news is good, it is very, very good. And he literally alternates going back and forth between the two. And the whole point of that, you understand, is to bring the apostate people of God to their knees in repentance. And after giving a roundhouse kick of bad news to the face in chapter 1, Isaiah opens chapter 2 with the glorious good news of what God has planned in the future. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. Isaiah writes, the word which Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it will be in the end of days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established at the top of the mountains. And it will be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. 
And many peoples will come and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob and let him teach us from his ways and let us walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and he will decide for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. O house of Jacob, come. And let us walk in the light of Yahweh. And there it is. Paradise regained. The kingdom restored. What God originally intended the world to be like. And where all human history is headed. It's all right there. Verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice first in verse 1 what this thing is that you're about to see. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, the word which Isaiah, son of Amotz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Do you see that? This whole thing is the word which Isaiah saw. In other words, this was not some mystical experience where he may or may not have heard God's voice. No. This is a prophetic, poetic sermon oracle that Isaiah received directly from Yahweh, and Isaiah saw it. God cracked the space-time continuum and revealed a message to Isaiah about how the world is going to end and how it's going to begin again. And notice, who or what is the vision about? To whom does it pertain? And Isaiah says it is about Judah and Jerusalem. Guilty, vile, and helpless Judah. Idolatrous, cruel, and vicious Jerusalem. The vision pertains to them. And you need to understand, that's not symbolic for anything else. That is not a metaphor for the church. This is literal Judah. This is literal Jerusalem. When God has planned for the end of the age, what you are about to see unfolded has not happened yet. But mark my words, it is going to happen. What? What is going to happen? Verse 2. He says, and it will be in the end of days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established at the top of the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills. I want you to notice very carefully those opening words there in verse 2, and it will be in the end of days. Do you know what that is? That is code. Prophecy. It's code for eschatology, the end times. Whatever this is that you're about to see, it has not happened yet, but it will happen at the end of days. Which days? Which days are we talking about? The days that God has allotted the world to its exist it to exist in its current condition. And when those days run out and transpire, God will intervene and do something different in the world that He is not currently doing. And what is that exactly that He will do? Look what it says. At the end of days, here it is, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established at the top of the the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills. And you can see it. And high 
definition, blue-ray, laser-sharp clarity at the center of the entire vision is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, whatever that is, and wherever that is, it is loaded with theological and eschatological significance. The question is, what is the mountain of the house of Yahweh? The house clearly is not a 1,500 square foot home with three bedrooms, a couple bathrooms, a fence, and a yard. No, what that is, that is Old Testament speak for temple. This is a temple. Yahweh's temple, maybe better to call it a royal palace in which he resides. And notice very carefully, the temple sits on top of a mountain. This is kind of a big deal because as you're about to see, Yahweh himself will be on that mountain, in that temple, dwelling there, ruling the world from there, being worshipped by the nations from there. And the funny thing about that word mountain is that there is a theology of mountains in the Bible. Did you know that? In Scripture, God used mountains as locations to reveal himself and new phases of his plan. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh appeared in a burning bush and summoned Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he did so on a mountain. Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh gives the law from a mountain. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Christ reveals himself as the Messiah and preaches only the greatest sermon in human history, and he did so on a mountain. Luke chapter 9, Christ transfigures himself and reveals his blinding, infinite glory, and he did so on a mountain. Matthew 28, the risen Christ reveals the global mission to go and make disciples of all the nations, and he does so on a mountain. And here, Yahweh will reign and rule and guide and govern everything that comes to pass on a mountain. Can you handle that? Maybe the better question is, can you even wait for that? Of course, the question still remains, what and where exactly is this mountain? Can this mountain be actually identified with any sort of clarity at all? And the answer is absolutely it can. Absolutely it can. For instance, when we see, what what is this place? We see in verse 3 there that the nations will call this the mountain of Yahweh. Okay? Verse 3 goes on to say that it is the house of the God of Jacob. Okay? But then the end of verse 3 blows this thing wide open and we find out that the mountain of the house of Yahweh is none other than Zion. And one of the things that Hebrew poets and prophets love to do is use parallelism. What is the name of the place that is parallel with Zion? What is another name for Zion there at the end of verse 3? It is Jerusalem. The literal city in the ancient Near East, the literal city that still exists today, by the way, in the middle of which is a mountain. Well, by Texas standards, it is a mountain. (laughs) It is a hill. It used to be called Mount Moriah. Then it became Mount Zion. It was the place where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him. It's where Solomon built his temple. And what this means, don't miss this, is very important. 
What this means is that the scene of the vision that you are looking at with your own eyes is not some ethereal, heavenly realm out there somewhere in the metaverse. It is the very earth on which you reside at this moment. And in particular, the city of Jerusalem. Because you understand paradise was lost on the earth. Paradise will be regained on the earth. And I'm wondering if you're okay with that. What I mean is, most people's conception of the age to come consists mostly in this vague notion of heaven in which we are still trying to shake this lame medieval image of playing harps in a toga while sitting on a cloud, not in the Bible. Heaven is in the Bible. That vision of heaven is not. What I'm saying is you need to make room in your theology for geography. You realize geography is simply theology made visible. Meaning the literal completion of the covenants that God made with his people demands, demands their tangible, physical, visible fulfillment on the earth in a kingdom ruled by the Messiah. Because a global kingdom on the planet was always God's plan, even from the very beginning. This is simply the restoration of God what always had planned. And you see it in the text there, don't you? The prominence of the mountain, the centrality of the mountain, the supreme elevation of the mountain upon which the temple resides. Look again at verse 2 and notice carefully the language. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established, notice this, at the top of the mountain. And it will be lifted up above the hills. Meaning what? It could mean, it could mean that when this all transpires, that this will be the highest mountain in the world. Could be the case. I mean, after all, Isaiah 11 and Zechariah 14 and Revelation 16 do describe catastrophic, cataclysmic, geographical, geological, topographical transformations where plains become mountains and mountains become plains. And so I suppose it's possible that God will jostle the earth in the future in such a way so as to make this little hill in Jerusalem even higher than Mount Everest itself. I suppose that's a possibility. But I don't think that's demanded by the text. Because you understand those two words, highest and lifted up, you see that in the text? Highest and lifted up, those two words can describe physical elevation. But they can also describe spiritual exaltation. What I mean is those two terms describe the supremacy of Zion. The the preeminence of Jerusalem. In other words, when Yahweh builds his kingdom on the earth, Zion will be the capital of the kingdom, the headquarters of the king, the center of the earth, the city of God, and the most important piece of real estate on the planet. Why? Because God is there. And the implications of this, you understand, they are staggering. They're staggering. Like what? What are the implications of the preeminence and prominence of Zion? Why does this matter? Well, for starters, number one, the prominence of Zion 
Just the mere mention of Zion, Jerusalem in the text reveals, understand this, get this, that one day God will grant every single covenant promise he ever made to the people of Israel. Every single one. Which is massive. Do you know why? Because that is how we know that God will also keep every single promise he made to us. You understand God is not done with Israel. The best is yet to come for Israel and for us. But number two, the prominence of Zion. What it really means is the prominence of Yahweh himself. As the vision makes clear, the star in the show of the kingdom will neither be Israel nor the nations, but rather the one who is worshipped by Israel and the nations, namely God himself, which I'm about to argue is none other than Jesus Christ himself. What you have to understand, if you can metaverse your way through this, if you can picture this, if you can think about this in your mind, you need to understand that what we are seeing, even though Isaiah doesn't go into detail about it here, but he will in chapter 11, he will in chapter 35. He, there are other places in the prophets that describe this. What I'm saying is one day everything in the world that is warped and ugly and twisted and ruined by the fall will be reversed and restored to its pristine pre-fall paradise-like conditions and all things will be as they ought to be. And what you what this is, you understand, church, this is a summons to hang on and to persevere and to hold fast to the king until he makes it right. Melodic glory number two. Number two, the unrestrained allegiance of the nations. The unrestrained allegiance of the nations. And you can hear it. I have an interest in Israel, the people of Israel. And the question is, why am I pro-Israel in my theology? That's kind of a weird way to word it. But why am I for Israel in my theology? And I'll just have you know, it has nothing to do with politics. Zero to do with politics. You see, I am for Israel in my theology because I am for the nations in my theology. And the reason why I am for Israel and for the nations in my theology is because I am for the covenants of Scripture. And in particular, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember that? Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham, makes a covenant with him and his future descendants, the Jewish people. And you understand the whole point of the covenant with Abraham, the whole point with with Israel was that they were called to be a channel of blessing to the ends of the earth. In other words, God chose them not as an end in themselves, but to be his instruments to mediate his glory and salvation to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. To put it another way, the Jews were chosen by God to be a kingdom of priests, the light of the world, and a servant to the nations. That's the plan. That's the plan of the whole Bible. The fullest manifestation, culmination of that plan is exactly what Isaiah describes. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see the prominence of the mountain there, lifted up above the hills. And notice, notice there, he says, all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and they will say, come. 
Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let him teach us from his ways. And let us walk in his paths. Now you can see, you cannot deny it, Israel is there. They are there in the text. And yet, although they are clearly the hosts of the party, the guests of honor at the party are the nations. And notice what it is the nations do. Verse 2 says that all the nations will stream to the mountain. Yahweh will have arrived. He will be on the earth. He will be ruling from a throne in Jerusalem. He will take his seat in Zion. And it says all the nations will stream to him. Think about this for a moment. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, animists one day will renounce their false gods. One day God will work in the world supernaturally in such a way where the current godless, hostile, violent nations will not only not want to kill Israel anymore, but instead partner with Israel in allegiance and worship of Yahweh. What? What will God do? What will God do to bring this global transformation about? And that's a question for verses 6 through 22. But the short of it is, in verses 6 through 22, we see that God will bring the blowtorch of his wrath in a time of future judgment. And although many, many will die unrepentant in the flames of Yahweh's anger, we do also see that many will be saved. It's called the Great Tribulation. I believe in that. I believe that's a thing. And Revelation 7 verse 9 says that out of the tribulation, a great multitude will come from every nation and stand before the Lamb. That is exactly what this is. And you notice that all the nations will stream to the mountain. That word is like it sounds. The nations will stream. They will river their way to Jerusalem like a stream. They will, they will flow up the mountain not to see the historical sites, not to gawk at the archaeological digs, but to see and worship the king ruling from Zion. Look at verse 3. Many, many peoples will come and they will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the, to the house of the God of Jacob, let him teach us from his ways. Let us walk in his paths. I mean, you see this, don't you? What the world will be like when the king comes to reign. The peoples of the world will take trips to Jerusalem. And they'll encourage other, other people to join them as they do. I think Isaiah is, means to picture for us a growing, swelling multitude from, na- from the nations, from all over the world, growing and growing as they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the palace of the king. And what exactly is it that the nations want to do when they get there? To riot? To protest? To overthrow the kingdom? Tower of Babel 2.0? What do they say? What will they say to one another as they're headed out to catch a plane to the Tel Aviv airport? They will say, come. Come with me. Come with me to the mountain of Yahweh. Join me. I've got an extra seat. Let's go to the house of the God of Jacob. It's incredible. You ever go to a prophecy conference? Do you learn about all the prophecies of the Bible and how God is going to fulfill them in the world? How about a prophecy fulfilled conference? And the keynote speaker is God himself. And he teaches and preaches on all the prophecies that he has fulfilled. Because guess what? That's exactly what this is. 
Because that's the question, isn't it? What will we do in the kingdom? What are we going to do when, when that transpires? And really the better question is, what will God himself do in his kingdom? And the answer is, he will preach. He will teach and he will preach to the nations. He will preach sermons and teach seminars and unfold theological mysteries that will blow our minds and he will instruct the nations on how to apply his word to their lives. And spoiler alert, again, I just want you to know that I believe this to be Christ himself, that he is and will be the one reigning and preaching from Jerusalem. What will that be like to hear a sermon from the lips of the reigning king? What will it be like to hear from Christ instead of the mumbled, incoherent, half-truth banalities that we hear from certain political leaders today? The sermons of Christ will boom like a cannon in that day and it will be music to our ears. And notice how eager the nations will be to be taught not just to hear, but their passion to hear and obey and listen and submit to the word of God. Look at verse 3. Look what they say. They say, let him, let him teach us from his ways. Let, let us walk in his paths. And I have to pause and say, this is so astonishing to me. You can see, can't you, how this could have and should have provoked Israel and Judah to jealous repentance when they see this? They should have been the ones leading the world in joyful obedience to the word of God. But instead, God has to use a vision of the nation's future obedience to provoke Israel to lead the world in obedience, which they will do one day. But one day, all the nations on the earth who currently hate God and despise God and shake their fist at God and labor night and day to obliterate every last trace of God from existence one day they all they will want is to hear the word of God and apply it to their lives the desire of the nations will be satisfied submission to the word of God glad-hearted obedience to the scriptures Imagine what that will be like. The nations will be saved and the evidence of their salvation will be a passion to hear and read and apply and obey and submit to the scriptures. The question is, do you see that in your life? Do you see that same passion in you, a desire, a hunger to hear? To read, to devour, to understand, to meditate on, to yield, and to submit to the word of the living God. Look at the end of verse 3. This is 4. The law will go forth from Zion. And the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. In other words, the law of God will be the law of the whole world. The word of Yahweh will be the final absolute authority on everything. And it just makes sense now, doesn't it? It just makes sense why we make such a big deal about the Bible in our lives. Why it should and must have the supreme and central place in our life and in our affections. It makes total sense why we say that. Why we believe that. Because... 
if the word of God will have the supreme place of importance in the ideal world and society, when God himself is on the planet, it just makes sense that the word of God would have the place of supremacy in our lives today. Don't you see, our lives and our homes and our churches, that is not the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Those things are not the kingdom. However, however, they can be and they must be a foretaste and a preview of the kingdom. You see, true kingdom living today consists in having the word of the living God as the supreme and central place in our hearts and in our affections. The question is, is that what you see in your life? Not to guilt you, but to entice you. To cause you to see that there are undiscovered depths of treasure just there in the scriptures that mankind has never even perceived. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word of God is not just a piece of literature, but it is a portal to the power and presence of God himself? Do you believe that the word of the living God, active and sharper than any two-edged sword, is the means and the mechanism by which we experience all the pleasure of the presence of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? And the real question is, is the reality of your faith, the reality of your salvation, is it verified by a consuming passion not only to hear God's word and to read God's word and to devour God's word, but to submit and yield to God's word. Because one day that's what the whole planet will be like. And that brings us to melodic glory number three. Number three, the universal dominance of Yahweh. The universal dominance of Yahweh. And by dominance, I simply mean his sovereign rule over the planet. Uh, not just rule, but not, not just the brute force domination, because even tyrants and dictators can do that. But rather, I mean when God takes the whole planet filled with chaos and violence and brings all things back to a perfect state of equilibrium and order, which is exactly what Isaiah describes in verse 4. Look at the text. It says, he, that is God, will judge between the nations. And he will decide for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. And there it is. That's what you want, isn't it? That's what everybody wants. What the planet calls world peace. Justice for all, that's what this is. But you have to understand, this is not some godless utopia or some superficial socialist dream world. No, this is God himself ruling the planet, coming to the planet that he created that is now mutilated by sin and single-handedly ending the reign of terror in the world. And you remember what they say, don't you? That absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's absolutely true when you're talking about a fallen man. 
When you're talking about a fallen man in whose chest is found the most lethal weapon of destruction known in history, namely the sinful human heart, but that is not true of the great high king to come when he comes to claim his throne. He will have absolute power, absolutely, but he will be absolutely incorruptible. I want you to listen to a quote from a book called The Greatness of the Kingdom. The Greatness of the Kingdom, one of the most shaping books of my life. You should get it. It's long. It's hard. But you read it and you will understand the Bible in a way that is profound. And listen to the way he juxtaposes the way the government runs today with the way the kingdom will run in the future. Listen carefully. The founding fathers of our American state, approaching their task with a deep suspicion of human nature, designed an ingenious system of checks and balances which kept any one man from having too much power. For they knew that this would lead inevitably to great destruction and disaster for the nation. But this precarious balance of powers is not the most ideal political form, for it is often clumsy and wasteful and inefficient. But when God's own glorious king takes over the kingdom of the earth, it will be safe at last, to concentrate all the powers of the state onto one person. This does not mean that he will do everything, but rather he will be the directing head and final authority over everything, thus providing a unifying center, both infinitely wise and good, for all the activities of government, something which no state on earth has ever enjoyed. That's exactly right. And the sovereign reign of a single ruler, infinitely good and wise, is exactly what we will enjoy when the great high king takes back the planet that's rightfully his. Look again at verse 4. Look at the divine activities of the king. It says, he will judge between the nations. He will decide for many peoples. And that seems easy enough. Justice? Fairness? That seems easy enough. We should be able to handle that. We shouldn't need God to come to the planet and establish justice. We, we, we just set up a committee for that. Like the Council of World Peace. Or the United Nations. Or the International Peace Bureau. Or the Institute for World Affairs. Or the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. Or the Nonviolent Peace Force. Or Peace Brigades International. Or Peace Science Society International. That's what they're for. That's what they exist to do. Right? And yet, although their work is, suppose, noble and well-intentioned, they labor in vain. And why? Because they're not God. The problem they're trying to solve is too deep. It's too evil. It's too pervasive. For mere human power and innovation. The problem is they don't have the curse-breaking, serpent-crushing power of Yahweh to settle disputes between nations that have existed for centuries because they don't have the power to change the human heart. And look at the two activities with which God will rule. First Isaiah says one day God will judge between the nations. That word judge doesn't necessarily only mean punishment. Rather, it means to bring 
justice, to bring justice, and everybody's concerned about justice. Everyone cares about justice today, and yet the issue is that word justice just doesn't do that word justice, because what that word justice is, what that word means, it literally has the idea of bringing order out of chaos. It is to bring all things to a perfect state of order and equilibrium. It is to make all things be the way they ought to be. And the second term is like it. In the kingdom, God will decide for many peoples. Meaning what? Meaning he will solve the problems of the world. Like all of them. He will fix the unfixable. He will unscrew the inscrutable. He will settle disputes between nations that are on their own would have never, ever been resolved. Trade agreements, border issues, immigration, natural resources, and the deepest political and economic dilemmas that have never been figured out will be figured out when the king comes to reign. And the thing about those two activities, judge and decide, the thing about those two activities is that those are the very same activities that Isaiah chapter 11 says that the Messiah will do when he comes to reign. And so that is why who we see here is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And so not only is this an interesting case for his deity, but even more than that, it is to say that as God, Christ will rule the earth with absolute sovereign perfection because just like the song we sing every December, he will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And two things I really want you to see here. One, I want you to see contained just in these few verses both the purpose of Isaiah and the goal for human history because they are one and the same. The purpose of the book of Isaiah, why it's in your Bibles, and the goal of human history is one and the same. What I mean is, Isaiah is in our Bibles to show us that all of history is nothing less than a salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. That's the book of Isaiah. And that is also God's plan for history. A salvation saga. Saga, if anyone asks you, what is the Bible about? Tell me about the Bible. You need to say to them, it is not a random collection of miscellaneous tales. It is a salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. What is history? But the canvas upon which God paints the masterpiece of his plan, not, not merely to get us to heaven with our sins forgiven, but to reestablish the kingdom on the earth which was lost. And you're just seeing this in the text. Just, just knowing that this is the finish line of human history. The king will come. Rescue the nations, restore Israel, rebuild a kingdom, just knowing that this is where human history is headed. And it is. It radically reorients our priorities in the present. Doesn't it? It should. It has to. It must. But you see, we have it in writing. 
We are watching a theatrical trailer, a sneak preview of how the world is going to end and how a new one will begin. The question becomes, the question becomes, is there anything in your life that makes zero sense in light of the kingdom to come? What I'm asking is, what pursuits, what priorities, what passions, what perspectives do you have right now at this moment that are literally irrational and illogical in light of the Messiah's kingdom? Because you understand when we have kingdom nostalgia for the way the world was and the way it will be again, the glitter of gold fades in its glory. In light of the kingdom, fear of death fades in its power. Doesn't it? In light of the kingdom, the thrill of lust loses its deceptive appeal. Doesn't it? In light of the kingdom, it is made absolutely clear exactly what our mission is on the earth, which is to get as many people as possible into the kingdom. And they are everywhere around you. Blind, dead, damned, and helpless souls who have no idea that there is hope. The question is, the question is, who needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom from you? The second thing I want you to see, this implication is that the same power that will reconcile hostile nations when Christ arrives is the very same power, listen carefully, is the very same power available to you right now in the relationships in your lives. What I mean is the same conflict-resolving, selfishness-killing, anger-deflating power that will change the whole world when Christ arrives is available to you right now in the deepest relationships of your life. It is available to you. But you see, your homes and your marriages and your friendships can and must be a foretaste of the kingdom. That's what gives our relationships their deepest significance. That's how marriage and family and friendships become an instrument, a platform to display the Great Commission. When your people see in your relationships a sample of what the whole world will be like when Jesus arrives. And so if you see patterns of anger and conflict and even violence in your relationships, I'd want you to have the sole reassuring hope that there is hope. Hope for you to be changed and transformed. And you need to understand that all the kingdom preview power you need to transform your relationships is found, is mediated to you through the book that you're holding in your hands. I'm serious. I'm not saying that just reading the Bible will magically make your problems go away. What I am saying, what I am claiming is that any chapter of the Bible, humbly read and carefully applied, can and will transform your lives in ways you have never even imagined. The fourth and final melodic glory. Number four, the unparalleled experience of peace. The unparalleled experience of peace. 
And it's astonishing to me, and I know it's astonishing to you, that the solution of many people to solve the problems of the world is to defund the military, to defund the police, cut the budget, less cops, less authorities, less guns, less bombs, less laws, and somehow, somehow that will magically make Humpty Dumpty come back together again. And truth be told, it's, it's really not a terrible idea. I'm actually all for that. I'm actually all for the defunding of the military. I'm all for the defunding of the police. I think that's a fantastic idea. After Jesus Christ arrives. <laughs> you defund the military and the police before the kingdom. You invite anarchy and destruction and chaos and murder. Afghanistan, Minneapolis, Kenosha, Chicago, Seattle, Case and Point. But you do that after the king arrives. Well, then that makes perfect sense. Because that's exactly what's going to happen when the king comes to reign. Look at verse 4. One of my absolute favorite prophetic pictures in the entirety of the Bible. Look at the text. He will judge between the nations. He will decide for many peoples. Here it is. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. What are these pictures? It's interesting, when the king comes to reign, they will pile up their swords and their knives and their guns and they will repurpose them for gardening tools. They will dismantle atomic bombs. Guns, rifles will be melted down and repurposed. All because of the supernatural transformation performed by King Jesus. And bad news for you if you are in law enforcement or some kind of security you will need to get another job in the kingdom. The military will be shut down. Christ is going to pull the plug on the DOD. Aircraft carriers will be turned into cruise liners, tanks into jungle gyms. All military academies will be turned into museums and seminaries. When Christ arrives, the nations will no longer prepare for war because there will be no more wars for which to prepare. And there will be no more wars because there will be no more lust and greed driving those wars. Because the always winter, never Christmas curse of sin will break. And the warm spring of Eden will come again. So, the implication of this is clear, isn't it? This must be included in your gospel presentation to unbelievers. You must tell them, include in your gospel conversations, you must speak to them about the king who will come and make things right. You have to. If you stop at mere forgiveness of personal sins, you have given them a gospel that is woefully inadequate. We must preach with power and clarity and authority that we have, not we, but we, by faith in Christ, we have the solution for the current train wreck of the world. It is the global reign of Jesus Christ when he comes to make things right in the end. So I ask you again, who, who needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom from you? I see the clock back there. I don't care. 
kidding. I'm a guest. I can do whatever I want. This will, by the way, be my last sermon at Bethany. So. Verse 5, and then we're done. Notice what Isaiah does. He turns now and with his pen looks his fellow Jews right in the eyes. And he says, Beit Yaakov, O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of Yahweh. You know what that is? That's a call to repentance. Because you understand repentance doesn't only come with warning and terror. It also comes with beauty and majesty. A glorious picture of what you could be a part of and what you could enjoy if you would just abandon your foolish sins and your foolish pride and yield in glad-hearted subjection to the king. And notice how Isaiah calls his people to repentance using the very same words that the nations will use in the future when they travel to Zion. Come, he says. Come. Let us walk in the light of Yahweh. What is the light of Yahweh? The text is clear. It is the truth of God. Who he is, what he demands, and what he offers in his son for ruined sinners like you and me. And what he offers in his son is the treasure of salvation paid for in full and a place in the kingdom for all those who bow to the king in thirsty submission. And so those of you in this room who still linger and lurk in spiritual darkness, I say to you, come. And let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need the future. We need theatrical previews, trailers of the future. Oh Christ, we are so grateful that you are in absolute sovereign control. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to you. You are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And we ask you to sustain us through visions like this to help us persevere and to help us see that no matter what transpires, we are always safe and secure in your sovereign hands. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their elders. Continue the profound supernatural work that is clearly of you. And we look forward to how you will make all of this result in the glory of your son in whose name we pray.